Welcome to the Teddy Talk Podcast. I am Teddy Tannenbaum, and my guest today is Bob Hurley, founder of Hurley International, one of the preeminent brands in the surf industry. Among so many cool things, one of the coolest bits about Bob is that he continually shows up as an authentic human being. What you see is what you get. Bob leaves it out all on the table. Our mutual pal Roger introduced us some years back, and we worked together for about eight years at Hurley, and we've been friends for years since then. I learned a ton from Bob, and I'm really excited and stoked to let you all in on some of that good stuff in today's podcast. Hello, everybody. This is Teddy Tannenbaum, and this is the Teddy Talk Podcast. Welcome back. Today, in our series, continuing series of meetings with remarkable people, lessons in leadership and life, delighted to have with me as a guest, Bob Hurley. Bob, welcome. Hi, Teddy. Hey. <laughs> Bob and I go back a few years. I'm not sure how many years it is, probably 15 years. Four, 12, Four, 12 15. Eight, 15. Hi, yeah. Not enough, though. Yeah. More of you is better. And and uh, and more in the future. Yes. To be sure. So I invited Bob to join us today because uh, Bob and I had a chance to work together, and I was really struck by his experience and his success as an entrepreneur and as a leader in the surf industry and as being an absolutely wonderful and generous human being. So, Bob, I thought we'd start by just uh, let the folks know a little about your background and how you, uh, you kind of got involved in the surf industry. And we'll take it from there. Sure. Yeah. When I was a young kid, our family's from Rhode Island, Cranston, Rhode Island, actually. And uh, my dad was in the military. We traveled all around the world. And uh, he passed away in Japan when I was young. And so my mom took us three kids back to Rhode Island to live a life that turned out to be harder than she had anticipated, you know, uh, with three kids and a husband that's missing. And so she decided to drive out west which led me to surfing. Route 66, seven years old. We ended up in Hawthorne, California. She didn't know one person. Our next door neighbor was the fire chief of Hawthorne. They were rich and they were (laughs) kind. They bought us groceries. They taught me how to play baseball. They had an RCA 27-inch screen TV color. It was amazing. And I just got interested in surfing. It was fascinating. Yeah. And you went to school there in Hawthorne or the the area? Yeah, school in Hawthorne until I was like a a young teenager. And then we moved to Orange County, which really got me into surfing because I met my friends, Tim and Chris Adams, and when I was a freshman in high school, and they they taught me how to surf. They were the best guys on the football team, but they had bleached blonde hair. And the coach said, hey, girls, hey, Adams sisters, don't come back with that hair tomorrow. Better be shaved or you're off the team. (laughs) And I was like, what happened, dudes? Do you you guys bleach your hair? It's kind of weird. And they're like, no, no, we surfed all summer. I'm like, I want to go surfing. So they taught me how to surf. Wonderful. And obviously surfing ever since. So what, what was the transition that happened for you when you realized that you wanted to make a life out of the surf industry, being involved in surf? Yeah, well, geez, it's been an incredible journey, and, and thanks for having me on. Remarkable people. I don't know about, I don't fit into that, but uh, remarkable experiences, certainly. And, uh, and yeah, just all these experiences that led me to surfing and also led me to realize that I really, really, really enjoyed it. Um, I sort of accidentally discovered how to make a living off it. And, uh, you know, if anything's an accident, I don't really believe it is, but 
you know, I was going to school. I was, I was working two waiter jobs. I also worked at a surf shop. We had two little kids with my wife, Shelly. And, and uh, I kept falling asleep in class. And the teacher just said, hey, next time you fall asleep, you're going to have to leave. This is a Long Beach State, six units away from graduation. And I said, no worries. Five minutes later, I was asleep. He came and tapped me on the shoulder. He's like, what did I tell you? I'm like, oh, got to go. See ya. And I quit college and started figuring out more how to make a living off surfing <laughs> by necessity. Right. Yeah, excellent. Uh, you know, college education, uh, not a lot's cracked up to be sometimes. It's helpful if yeah. you're learning how to learn. If you're learning how to learn. Or doing brain right. surgery. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, what, uh, so you knew you wanted to work in surf somehow. Right. Yeah, I wanted to be a star. I had quite a big ego. I wanted to be like the best surfer and a famous professional surfer uh, within about three or four contests. Uh, my wife encouraged me, as she always does. She believed in me. It turned out I was really bad at it. Good enough to be recreational, but not good enough to be, you know, step on the tennis court with Federer or play basketball with Jordan, which right. I was trying to do. And uh, yeah, I just learned how to work on surfboards. My friend Guy at a surf shop in Huntington helped me out. He right. owned a shop. He taught me how to do most everything. And he let me learn how to do the rest on his dime, which was super cool. Great. So you had good coaches and mentors Really too. good people. Yeah. I, I was always around really good people. And you were doing a lot of shaping in those days. Yeah, I learned how to shape when I was at Win and Sea. And a, a friend named Ed Angulo was a fantastic shaper. He told me a few things. And then I got to work with lots of all the great shapers around town in Huntington, which there were a lot of them. Huntington was booming at the time. They were probably selling in town probably about 500 surfboards a week. Really a big deal. That's where you went to get a surfboard was Huntington. And I was the behind the scenes. Jeez. They called them ghost shapers, ah. like ghost authors or ghost podcasters. There you go. They might not have those, yet, <laughs> but they might. <laughs> but soon. they might soon. Yeah. Yeah. So I was just the guy that did all the hard work because I was desperate and I needed money and I wasn't into partying and I wasn't famous. It was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> you were delightfully anonymous at the time. Yeah. So, and then I think you got involved with Billabong. Yeah, yeah. Through shaping surfboards, I eventually started my own brand, Hurley Surfboards. And I was always uh, drawn to amazing, wonderful, magic people. And I always wanted to work at a high level. Not that I was at a high level. I wanted to be part of their team. So right. I sought out like pro surfers sometimes and tried to make boards for them and collaborate with them. And that led me to some friendships of people that knew people at Billabong Australia, which was, that was my favorite trunks at the time because right. they were counterculture. They had long punk rock shorts. Everyone else had short preppy. Um, we, we were the antithesis of everything. Right. And I loved it. <laughs> and to this day. Still do. Yeah. All right. So I remember when, when we first met, you were telling me a little about your background and Billabong on the, on the, what's now the Hurley campus. Yeah. And then I, I recall you telling me that you went home one day and told Shelly, you said, guess what I did today? And she said, what? And you had two little kids at the time. You said, I quit my job. Tell us about that. Well, I was working at a sheet metal factory in Santa Ana. It was called R&D Metal Fabricators that my parents owned. And I was sort of the lead dog and uh, 20 years old. And it was a November... Unlike any other November, the <laughs> surf was six to 10 foot the whole month. Uh, it was a hundred degrees out, just those Indian summer Novembers. And, uh, you know, by day 27th, which is my birthday, I was greasy, almost getting my arms cut off every day and really hot in Santa Ana and getting cut by sheet metal parts and splinters in the eye and all that. And I said, you know, I don't think I can really do this anymore. And I was sort of next in line. I told my parents and uh, I told Shelly and she was just totally cool. She's like, okay, well, how are we going to make a living? I'm like, I'm going to be a professional surfer. And then, so that went back into the shaping right. and the, you know, trying to be a pro surfer. And then 
acquiring the Billabong license. Right. And how long did you have that license with Billabong? We had the license for Billabong for 16 years. Yeah, oh. Gordon was nice enough to give it to us. And every five years, it was a renewable thing. And, and by the end, it was just time to renew again. And the circumstances had changed in the world, in my life, uh, with our employees, with Billabong, everything. So it was just a time to just say, you know what? We're just going to give it back now. Thank you, Gordon. <laughs> it was awesome. And that's how the Hurley brand began. Exactly how the Hurley brand began right. because uh, – so we started Hurley 1999. We actually created the product in 98, uh, launched it in November 98 for shipping in 99. As some people listening may recall, the older people, that was the turn of the millennium. And there was something called Y2K. There was also something called MTV. There was nothing called Google or Apple or – I mean, there was Apple. I mean, when you used to work right. there, like when it was a dinosaur company, just, you know, Macs and stuff like that. But the world was changing significantly and also the need for whatever product we were making was changing significantly. So driven by the consumer that wanted a new world, a new thing, much like millennials now, there was right. that transition going on. Right. We decided strategically to be part of the future instead of the past, and it was really an exciting time. So I'm curious, Bob, tell us a little about uh, the courage that it takes to be an entrepreneur. And, and also, I remember when we first met, you told me about Microphone for Youth. Tell us about that period. Sure. Well, you know, the Microphone for Youth thing came about uh, – through the digital age, really. You know, we saw things like MySpace beginning. We listened to kids talking. We saw, you know, iPhones weren't out till 2007, but we saw people on their phones. We imagined possibilities. And, you know, we always thought, like, what if it wasn't us telling the kids what to buy, trying to take their money? What if it was us trying to partner with the kids to fuel their innovation and their curiosity? What if we could really make it feel like their brand? Not in a communist sort of way, but sort of as, as if the whole youth of the world bought into this idea of the brand and they could control it. That's why we wanted to start it. Therefore, our big slogan was microphone for youth. And our big concept was inclusion versus exclusion, right. which seems normal now. You can't exist now if you're not an inclusive company. Right. But back in 98, you could. You know, you still had the you still had it over the consumers a little bit, but now the consumers are in charge. And lucky or smart or curious, we saw that coming, and so we wanted to be a part of it. We didn't create it, obviously. Yeah. So when the, you started the company, you shipped it started shipping in '99, and through the 2000s, I'm curious about how the company evolved and how you were able to what your vision for the company was and how you grew the business. Yeah. Well, our vision for Hurley ever since the day we started and even before was to be a global lifestyle brand driven by inclusion with Microphone for Youth as the basic premise and focusing on innovation for in-water activity. It hasn't changed. In fact, it's stronger now than it ever was. But, you know, we've had a few bumps along the way. And, uh, you know, here we are now. I can't remember exactly what your question well, was. <laughs> <laughs> I should be taking notes. That's what professionals do. <laughs> so it's just I, but I did mean what I said it's, 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 a, it's a fascinating story to to start a, to be an entrepreneur right to have the courage to say I'm going to go out on that's my own that's the next part courage yeah Talk does, to does it that. require courage to be an entrepreneur uh, what do they call those entrepreneurs entrepreneurs See, I should have graduated from college right yeah. that bachelor's six, degree six right? more credits I know that's all I need you yeah. could probably get it through uh, life experience. Yeah, they wanted to do a story on famous alumni from there, and uh, they wanted to interview me. I finally agreed to after they said Steve Martin, Jerry Brown, all these people, right? Like big, <laughs> Long Beach State, big deal. 
two days later, they call me up. They go, what year did you graduate? I said, I didn't graduate. And they said, that's what an alumni is. And I said, well, I should have graduated. I would have knew that. But courage for an entre- entrepreneur, I think, I think honestly, the best lesson I learned for that was when I was six years old. And uh, my grandpa told me, he's like, Bobby, in life, here's what I've learned. You're going to get knocked down all the time. You're going to get knocked down. He may have even pushed me down gently, you know? <laughs> and then he pulled me back up and he said, but all that matters is that you get up and keep going. And uh, I think that's really what it takes for an entre- entrepreneur. Of course, you have to have a vision that sort of separates like, why would you do this? Because most people don't understand why you would do that. I think most entrepreneurs by a majority of people are thought of as cuckoo, which is fine because normal people don't change the world. That's and right. uh, you are going to get your butt handed to you almost every day. And a lot of bad things are going to happen. So you have to know that or at least be willing to withstand that to want to take on this challenge. And, you know, looking back after it's all done, would I do it again? Probably, but man, it takes a lot of energy and it doesn't seem like it at the time because you're passionate about it. Right. So there's the passion that goes into it. You have a vision, you bring passion. It also sounds like persistence is really important because if you're going to get knocked down, to get back up, you got to be pretty persistent or a little bit off. I think persistent is the number one thing, honestly. Even, let's say you have a bad vision, but you just won't give up. Right. I mean, sooner or later, somebody's going to give you a break. Sooner or later, you're going to make some progress. I think persistence is everything, really. Because there's a lot of days, honestly, in in my career where I've wanted to just go home and like shut the blinds and not talk to anybody. I don't want to sell anything anymore. It's hard. It is hard. At the same time, it's a wonderful gift and a blessing and awesome to work on. But occasionally, you know. So tell tell us about some of of the more memorable challenges or the knockdowns that you experienced in those early days and and- how you dealt with that. Yeah, well, so there's lots of challenges. You know, going back to the Billabong days, there's the challenges of a changing marketplace, much much like now. But in those days, it was surf companies deciding whether to get bigger by selling to Macy's, Nordstrom, non-surf shops, non-core surf shops. That was a big challenge that we got through by working with a lot of great people. Another big challenge I can vividly recall is uh, we needed a bigger warehouse. We had a guy in charge of logistics who kept assuring me the racks were coming soon and we would be able to ship all our goods by the end of the month. Well, we hadn't shipped anything in 45 days and we were running out of cash and receivables. But we had a whole warehouse full of boxes of stuff that was all sold and our guy kept saying, calm down, calm down. The racks are coming you know, this week, this week, this week. And finally, I threw a tantrum, got him in there, and I said, look, I don't care when the racks, we're going to start. No, 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 I just talked to the guy. The racks are almost here. They broke down in New Mexico on a train. I'm like, (laughs) dude, I don't care. Open all those boxes. We're going to start shipping. No, 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 that's how you do it. That was a big challenge that we got through. I remember being over-inventoried by like millions of dollars of stuff in the past, wrong ordering versus, you know, what was sold. I remember, uh, I remember crazy logistical computer stuff. We forgot to invoice for a whole month in February, which was our biggest shipping month of the year when we first shifted our warehouse with Hurley after we had partnered with Nike. So figure this out. We're part of Nike, and we forgot to invoice the whole month of February. <laughs> and the best my guys would tell me was, well, most of the retailers are pretty honest. They're probably going to call us with what they got in the box and pay us. I'm like, you're kidding, right? Is that really going to happen? Now, I'm not talking about a small amount of money. When I say we forgot to invoice, it might have been in the range of $12 million worth of stuff. <laughs> Crazy, scary stuff. But you know what? You just get through it. Yeah, you get And you work it. with great people, and they always solve it. And... So you mentioned uh, the Nike uh, partnership. Let's yeah. go back to that. 
I'm curious, what, uh, when, when did the Nike deal happen? The Nike deal with Hurley happened in 2002, March 3rd, 2002, it closed. For about six months before that, I was talking with Tom Clark about it. The reason we sought out Nike to partner with is, A, it was always our favorite brand, right. pretty punk rock, much, much like our history with Billabong. You know, Nike was always bucking the system, and Phil Knight was a radical, and Bo knows everything, and, you know, Tom Clark had done a great job there, and that was just the romantic brand that I wanted to be involved with. And we always wanted Hurley to be a brand around the world that looked the same everywhere. That's, that was an antithesis to the surf industry. The surf industry wanted brands to look regional for regions. I didn't like that. When I go to the airport and see Nike or Louis Vuitton or Gucci, I thought, now that's what a brand should look like. Right. If our stuff is good enough and we don't make too much junk, it can look like that and it will sell at the airport in Hong Kong. And it will sell at the Frog House too, because uh -huh. I love both. So, yeah, that's why we sought out Nike, and uh, we cold-called Nike. They weren't interested, of course. We were a $70 million brand. We had just grown so fast, up to $70 million in three years. As far uh -huh. as I recall or know, it's the fastest-growing apparel company in history, Hurley, uh -huh. since inception to three years, way faster than Nike's growth even. But we had similar paths with uh, Phil Knight. Uh, he used to be a licensee. He gave it back. Uh -huh. We were a licensee. We gave it back. We had similar principles, not exactly the same, but we believe in curiosity, innovation, inclusion, and it just felt right, even yeah. though it was ridiculous. Why, why, why do they want us? The it's answer almost, was easy. They need us, yeah. I thought. <laughs> right. It's almost like the mouse that roared. Yes. That, that story. So you approach Nike, and first they, they, rebuked, they rebuked you, right? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Too small to even deal with the paperwork. Right. 70 million, come on, guy. Come on. And legal right. fees are more than that. So, and I think, I remember you telling me that they came back to you a year later. Is yeah, right? Tom Clark did. He he took a year off. He used to be the COO of Nike for right. quite a while, and uh, he took a year off because it was a pretty hard job. And uh, after they declined, he called me up just out of the blue. He's like, hey, this is Tom Clark from Nike. I'm like, yeah, who is this? This is Tom <laughs> Clark from Nike. I'm like, oh, hey, sorry. I thought it was one of my friends Prank pranking call. me. Yeah. He goes, yeah, I think we should meet. I'm like, about what? You guys don't want to do business with us? He goes, well, I just think we should meet. It'll be fun. You know, I kind of had a year off. I, I'd like to talk to you. I'm like, okay. He comes down. He's like, wow, microphone for youth, man, inclusion. These are huge ideas. And I go, yeah, what if all the teenagers in the world connected? He goes, that's what I'm talking about. This is huge. Nike's not thinking like this yet. And uh, so we talked for about six months and, geez, we made a deal. It was crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So Tom was pretty forward thinking about it. Really clever, forward thinking, smart, and uh he didn't need a dog and pony show, which I didn't have, which was fantastic. So ironically, come to find out years later, which I hadn't even realized because I'm not so bright. Prior to me reaching out to Nike, a gentleman named Roger Wyatt came to see me that worked at Nike. And everyone was scared. There's a Nike guy in the building. Don't tell anyone because it's scary, right? <laughs> Nike's scary. Yeah. Well, I met this guy, Roger, and it wasn't so scary. And Roger had a pitch for us. He goes, hey, Nike's tried to get into surf before. It never worked. You make the best board shorts. You have the heaviest brand right now. I'm very aware of it. I live in Laguna Beach. I know what's going on. Would you be interested in licensing the Nike mark so you can sell board shorts with the Nike mark on them? And I said, well, that's interesting. That's a little bit out of the blue. I never really thought of it. Like right now we're growing really fast. We're really profitable. I don't know why we would take on Nike. What about Nike takes on Hurley? And he's like, I don't think I could ever slide that. So that was actually my first introduction to Nike, later becoming the best guy ever to work with, Roger right. Wyatt, who made this brand amazing. And who introduced us. It took us. me years to find out, and he never told me. 
Wow. Because one day I found his card when I was moving. I'm like, Roger, what? I'm like, hey, was that you, <laughs> you? that came and saw me before? Pretty cool, <laughs> huh? Yeah. And of course, Roger was the one who introduced the two of us all yes. those years ago. Yes. I work with Roger at Disney. My mentor that's younger than me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> By a few months. <laughs> so uh, when you when you got involved with Nike, what was your, what was the hope? What, what did the team feel about that? How did the team feel about that? And what were the hopes for that kind of partnership? Yeah, well, that was an exciting process that I, I really relish and I hope some people get to do. I mean, to be able to do that deal was just incredible. And the way it all happened at the time here at Billabong slash Hurley, we had eight partners. Um, so bringing everybody along was interesting and challenging. And for the most part, they were completely supportive. They wanted to do this. They put their salaries at risk for it. You know, I made a deal. I think I own 72% of our Billabong entity. When we switch it to Hurley, I still own 72%, but guess what? I still never had a penny because it's all on paper, right? right? That's what they say. It sounds like BS, but it's true. Yeah. And then uh, all of a sudden, I'm like, how am I going to keep these highly paid people that I love working with that are so skilled? And I had this little pea brain idea. If they would lower their salary by every $50,000, every $50,000, which people got paid a lot in those days, um, they could have a percentage of the company. I can't remember what it was, but I realized, wait, I own 72% and I have no money. This is awesome. I'm <laughs> killing it, I guess. I could still own 50% and have no money. So I divvied it up and oh, I felt like the light bulb went off and I felt like problem solved. So they were all stoked financially. They were stoked, yeah, absolutely. They were invested in that. When we made the deal with Nike, it got interesting because- that's really when the fun begins. I don't know if you've ever seen a movie called The Gods Must Be Crazy, of but course. there's an airplane flying over <laughs> Africa. Someone throws out a Coke bottle and the village goes cuckoo because they discover a Coke bottle and it's the best thing they've ever found. <laughs> well, everybody forgets to work and everybody starts you know, positioning for their future. And not everybody, but it's just interesting dealing with the dynamics of nine people that just all got money. Yeah. And what does that mean for my future? Does that mean I'm retiring? Does that mean I still need to work here? Does that mean... I want to try to be a big shot at Nike, a little shot at Nike. Like, what, what does that all mean? Nobody really knew, you know? So it's unexplored territory. And I treasure those moments, just yeah. dealing with all that and those people and the lawyers with good advice and the finance people with good advice. It was so fun. Yeah. It sounds and like it a really exciting hard. time, huh? Yeah. It was hard. So uh, the But it was fun. So was, how hard is fun? Right. You know? If you love what you do, you never have to work exactly. a day in your life. There was a certain culture here at Hurley prior to the Nike deal. Correct. Right. How would you describe that culture prior to Nike? Because then we'll talk about what Yeah, well, the, the culture at Hurley prior to partnering with Nike was uh, work really, really hard, um, make amazing products, and have fun while you're doing it. Enjoy every minute, every day. And the fundamental concept was if you're going to be creative, you got to be having fun while you're doing it. You know, Otherwise, it's just some weird kind of business thing and you're trying to scheme money out of people. It was very pure and it was very like, you know what? We're just doing this for the consumer and we're making stuff we like. And the reason we like it is because we know our friends like it and we trust our friends more than market research. Right. It was really fun. Yeah. So you were at the you know epicenter of the surf industry here in Huntington Beach. Yes. And so you were in touch with what's going on in the culture, in the surf culture, and you tried to have your finger on that pulse. Yeah. Well, we were very, very lucky because not only were we at the epicenter of surf culture at a changing time, we were also at the epicenter of global culture. Now, maybe that's a North American view, but we had two bands that were promoting our product in 1999 that became global icons and it was Blink-182 and the Black Eyed Peas. So 
through the affiliation with them, we ha- we are really plugged into culture. I mean, we would meet their friends, we would go to their shows, we would sponsor their shows and their stuff, and we were really learning a lot. You know, the Black Eyed Peas were really big in hip hop before they went really, really commercial. And we met a lot of really influential people that helped us with our design. And it was out of the box, man. It wasn't like Quicksilver or Bill Levong or anything. Those are great brands, but we had a whole different thing going on. We weren't trying to be anything like them. Right. It was awesome. It goes back to that microphone for youth, right? whether it's art or whether it's music or the, or the whole stir of culture and combining all those things together. So after the Nike uh, you know, partnership, what was, what was your role like? Well, my role kept being amazing after the Nike partnership. But when I say amazing, confusing as well, because I always use the analogy, Nike is like the finest Gulfstream you can buy. I don't, I don't know much about jets, but is that a 650 Gulfstream? They're, they're pretty nice. There might be nicer ones. But, and we were like a beautiful, beautiful little Cessna, as good as you could get, <laughs> like a little single engine, the best one in the world. And uh, the same flight manual doesn't apply. So on the Nike side and on the Hurley side, how do we do this? How do we figure this out? How do we report this financially? How do we not be a distraction, but add to Nike? All that stuff was so interesting. And I I relished my role. I was still leading Hurley at the time. And, and as you, as you were leading Hurley through this, through the transition, because obviously when you're part of something larger than yourself, you have, it's like having a big brother. Right. Correct. And, uh, and, you know, capital was probably not a problem anymore. No, <laughs> no, no thoughts of bankruptcy. <laughs> right. So, as, as before the deal, always thoughts always of bankruptcy. Thought, right. <laughs> no fear, but always thoughts. Right. So, so you could, you, you have that big brother and you have some capital investment and then you could really expand the brand. Correct. And really take it global. That was the Nike idea. was a global brand. That was the idea. Yeah. yeah. That was the idea. So, uh, let's talk about a little bit more leadership. Yep. Right. You know, when you and I worked together, we had, we had a lot of fun. Those were fun days. These are fun days. <laughs> These too, are though. fun days too. Thank I you know. for being here. My pleasure. Thank you, man. It's, I remember when I first met you, uh, Roger introduced us and we were just getting to know each other and you talked about investing in the people, right? right. And we started investing in people here. Right. One of the things I observed of you and in you was just how you showed up as a leader. Yep. And one of the things, one of the things about that was some people lead from the front some people leave from behind. Right. You used to be one of those leaders that led from behind. Right. That you didn't need to be out in front. You didn't need to have the spotlight. And yet people look to you to make sure they were on the on the right path. Right. Can you speak to a little bit about your kind of leadership style or your leadership persona as you know, as as it manifested here at Early? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean I've been very lucky. Um things I was bad at turned out to be huge assets. So People that are really studying leadership probably shouldn't do what I did. (laughs) I just had, you know, when I was a kid, I was in sports and I was pretty good. I was usually one of the better guys on the team. And of course, I thought I was the best always. And I had a gigantic ego, like really no joke, you know, really, really a big. (laughs) Hard to imagine. Super cocky, bratty, all that stuff. But that can help as an entrepreneur. But so what happened was, as I got older, um, I got smaller and slower or everyone else got faster and bigger. I'm not sure which. And I wasn't the man anymore. And then I learned how to surf and I wasn't the man at that either. And then I learned how to shape boards and I wasn't the man at that either. And I soon realized what I'm really good at enjoying about my life is working with people that are very good at things and trying to help them. So just the idea that like, oh, you want to work here? Cool. I'll sharpen your pencils. I'll get you notepads. I'll sweep up for you. If you need any advice from me, awesome. Awesome. I've never looked as 
at employees, well, at least in the last 20 years, I've never looked at, at coworkers as an expense. I always look at them as an investment. Therefore, how could you hire too many people? Because if you're hiring smart, you're just going to make more money. I'm always trying to latch on to everyone else's game. All the magical humans, I want part of that. And yeah, I can borrow the money to invest in you to be profitable at that. It's fun. Yeah. I love being around amazing humans. And, you know, over the years, we've done a pretty good job at it. We're pretty selective and selfish about it. We're not dismissive of people that aren't magical. But, man, if you have a choice to be around magic or not, pick magic. Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to help them. Yeah. The, I remember once you telling me that I, I, I'd rather have fewer people here and pay them more and have them fully invested in what we're doing, right? To get that kind of commitment out of Correct. people. And to create an environment where people go, I want to show up today. I want yes. to be part of this. I remember, you know, uh, town hall, right? That sometimes people would be on the campus and there'd be an email would go out in the morning, hey, town hall, 930. And everyone would just start showing up at town hall at 930 impromptu. And there'd be a video and you'd say a few things or Roger say a few things or just say, hey, here's something that's coming down the pike or here's something we're working on or here's a priority that we're shifting to today. And everyone was just stoked and excited and then just flooded out of there and back to their offices and desks and get to it. That's a particular kind of culture, right, that requires a particular style of leadership. Yes. Someone who's, who's always thinking, what's the vision? Right. Vision separates, I think you told me this once, vision separates leaders from followers. Right. Right. If you remember, we uh, we created some leadership. We created a leadership institute here. Yes, I remember. Of course, <laughs> you helped so many people, <laughs> mostly me. <laughs> it was it was great fun. Still great fun. In those days, I remember interviewing you when we talked about your kind of leadership rules to live by. Can you speak to some of those? Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. So Roger has. Uh, Roger has 90% of the 100% brain and I have 10. So okay. I just wanted to talk Pretty real good deal. briefly about the town halls because what happened was we were losing money when Roger got here. As a part of Nike with unlimited resources <laughs> and a great brand, we were losing money. Now, anyone out there that's starting a company, just beware. It's way easier to lose money than make it. <laughs> I have no idea how. We're very successful losing. So Roger says, well, we got to let everyone that works here knows we're losing money. I'm like, no, we can't do that. I was more of the secretive, don't, don't pass out all the information. He goes, but there's 200 people here. If we let them know what's going on, they can fix it. I'm like, I don't know, dude. I don't know. <laughs> He's like, we're gonna, he goes, we're going to start having these town halls and we're going to tell them the good, the bad, and the ugly. These aren't rally session with fake facts. Of course, we'll hype the troops up with our vision and our opportunities but we're going to tell them the real facts. They're responsible for the numbers, not me, not you. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so that was his deal. And then, you know, just on the rules for leadership, I think uh, they aren't rules that I would suggest to other people. It's just, they, they're just ones that work for me. Personal you know, for situationally, you. we just get through life and, and I'm persistent. So I figure out how to get through. And sometimes really smart people tell me things and I usually try to listen to them. But I think embracing your role and not having a hierarchy, and it kind of goes in with the town hall and sharing the information. Like there's a lot of managers, and I'll put myself in this role. It's like, nope, this information stays between these walls, these secret plans, these meetings we have for six hours. We don't tell the masses what they're about because the masses can't handle it. You know, Roger was of like, hey, man, we're all the same. There is no hierarchy here. You sweep the floors here. You're just as important as the leader of the company. And I think that is a really inspiring 
way to lead. I don't know if gigantic corporations can be like that, but I know Mark Parker, the leader of Nike, is like that personally. I don't know if it's able to be communicated throughout the whole company. I know Phil Knight was like that. And you just get everybody on the team and you just play the game. It's so fun. What else, Teddy? I, I'm looking at uh, my notes here, and my notes are a little small for my eyeballs. <laughs> I don't know what's wrong so, with my eyeballs. <laughs> well, uh, in terms of, of leadership, we, you know, we talked about Roger, and I know Mark Parker was a big influence on you. Yes. Other people in your career that have influenced you and, and some yeah. takeaways you have from those yeah. folks. This, this will sound glib, but I don't mean it to be. Uh, almost everyone I run into every day influences me. And it's not that I don't have my own identity. You know, I have some very basic beliefs and goals, but I, I let other people sort of fill in the blanks and I pick from them uh, without wavering from my basic fundamental beliefs and goals. But, you know, the no hierarchy, the, um, the stuff, you know, you read the books, the stuff you learn in kindergarten. To me, the stuff you learn in kindergarten and the playground, that's how I operate. Now, I don't know if that's good for a big corporate executive, but that's the way I need to operate and live. And so... You know, you want to show respect to everybody. You want to get the good people on the team. The people that aren't so good, if they're on your team, you want to lift them up and make them feel better and they can maybe play better and and just that normal kind of kid stuff. Maybe get here earlier than everybody. Say hello in the morning. Right. I know a lot of corporate leaders that don't say hello. The easiest, freest thing to do. Maybe every once in a while, throw out a compliment. I only picked up on this stuff because it's how I thrive. Like when I've had bosses that throw me a little bone of a compliment, I've had bosses that wouldn't say a compliment for two years. Yeah. And they throw you one little bone and you're like, why don't they do that every day? I'm so pumped up now. And just a little tiniest little stupid yeah. stuff. That To me, that's the big stuff, really. Yeah. To me, that's that speaks uh, especially to culture about how culture is one of the more critical factors for success in a company. Because it's the way people behave and the way people believe, and it usually starts at the top, right? So the way you carry yourself will influence other people. The way they see you treat other people is the way they will treat other people. It's almost like a, a monkey see, monkey do yeah. kind of environment. So what I observed here was that uh, extremely generous and very inclusive, as you said. And I remember, again, that microphone for youth, the art and the music, and it's all part of one thing here, saying, we're not going to disrespect kids. Kids aren't just our, our customers. They're part of this culture. We want to make it more inclusive. So, and, and I think you rightly point out that it's difficult. When you get involved with a larger company and, you know, you've worked with Nike for years, I've been exposed and have had the pleasure of working with really a lot of large uh, global organizations, and I see that bureaucracy can really be challenging on occasion, right? Some people think, well, that will help us bring efficiencies, some people say, well, actually, that's just more of a stumbling block or a, or a brick wall. So I'm curious, and you're smiling because, you know, there's a recognition there. I'm curious, you know, what was it like as you got involved with Nike to deal with the Nike bureaucracy? Well, it was so interesting because I know some really bright people at Nike that have track records that are astounding. You know, they've, they've made that brand. And, and my first thought when we partnered with Nike was like, this is going to be great. I can't say, wait to see what they do with our brand. And then my second thought was like, wait, I'm in charge of it? Wait, I'm figuring out like Europe? Really? I'm supposed to get an office over there? I'm figuring out how to make shoes? Really? Nike knows how to make shoes. And I was like, whoa, 
this is just like the rest of life. Nobody just hands you stuff. You actually have to do it. This is weird. For some reason, I thought it was going to be like some weird fairy tale. It was a different kind of fairy tale that was awesome, but I got to be critically involved and wanted to be. And even the things I didn't know that I learned were so interesting. But at one point, the company Hurley was growing so fast and losing money. I'd never lost money before. I don't see how you can lose money, but you just can. (laughs) I said to Tom Clark, Tom, I got, I got to resign. Like, I'll stick around, like I'll be a figurehead or something, but we need, we need somebody that can run this place. And he goes, not going to happen. You can't resign. You're the, you're the best guy for the job. You're the, you're the CEO. That's, that's you. Not going to happen. Sorry. Non-negotiable. And so I walked into HR and I said, Hey, Angela, Tiffany, make my paycheck a dollar a year until we make money. I'm not taking any money, which wasn't super noble on my part. I was really mad at myself for like not not grabbing the reins earlier and just waiting for people to do things. I was really angry at myself. I didn't think I was talented enough. Uh, but when I, I found out when we got really hungry and as a team shared those results, like, hey, guys, I don't know if you know this. We lost money last year. Everybody went like, why didn't you tell us? You know what I mean? Everybody pitched in and helped. Yeah. And we got in the black right away. And that was yeah. that was Roger's encouragement, yeah. you know. But learning these things along the way is just so interesting. And then since we partnered with Nike, we've grown four times in size and so has Nike. Nike. But because they're so much bigger, the divide keeps getting bigger. Right. The, the, so interesting. <laughs> you're running as fast as you can. You're still falling behind. Yeah. Right. So I remember uh, when Roger came around, uh, one of the trade shows, uh, Roger said, so how much business do we do at these trade shows? <laughs> and we, and we, everyone said, well, we don't really do business. We just, it's more of a, you know, networking and we just show our brand and like that. And Roger goes, it's a trade show. We should be doing some trade. That was a foreign concept. Right. That's not how the surf industry operated. Like, whoa, it, well, well, we started at that time and we have for a long time called it the Brodeo. You know, <laughs> everyone's high five and hugging and, talking story and being cooler than the next guy in a, in a happy, wholesome sort of way. But Roger was just puzzled. He's like, I don't get it. This is business. Like we, we have customers here. We have order forms. We have product. Let's sell. Let's sell. And I was like, Oh, I don't know, Roger. I don't know if we could do that. I trust you though. And the first trade show he did that. I think we sold a million bucks yeah. and we made it fun. We had a fax machine there. Does anyone remember those? <laughs> I, we were faxing orders into the office right. and we were keeping a ticker all day, like with a thermometer. We got up to a million bucks and it was so energizing. It was really different and, and it, it was, was so fun. It was transformational. Yes, it really right. was. Yeah. yeah. I forgot about how important that was. So I'm curious, uh, Hurley's has a great is a global brand, right? It's it's known globally. Well, we're getting there. We're getting there, right? <laughs> and and uh, Nike, obviously a global brand, but in Nike's world, Hurley's also a category. Correct. So I'm curious about the dynamic tension between being a category and being a brand. Yeah. Well, we're always trying to figure those operational issues out, right? What is it? You know, Jordan has the same issue and so does Converse. We're all part of Nike, and right. we're we're blessed to be part of Nike. I mean, to me, the greatest thing that's ever happened to this brand. You click on Nike.com and there's a Hurley logo and you can buy stuff there. Wow. To me, I I mean, I gave all the bosses up there a little plaque and said, thank you. It's like a pinnacle of my career. I can't believe we were able to do this together. Now, day to day, try figuring (laughs) out whether you're a category or another brand or where the power lies. Is it centralized, decentralized? Are we independent? Are we not independent? Luckily, we work with great people that are amenable to trying different things, and we're sometimes amenable, as painful as it is, to try stuff. 
And in business, I think you never really figure it out. Even as great as Nike seems, they're always trying to figure it out. We're always trying to figure stuff out. Some people look at our business, just go, you guys are crushing it. That must be easy. And I'm sure they say that to you too at the U2 concerts too. You go backstage, everyone's like, ah, where's the cables? Has anyone seen Bono? Like, what's going on? That's how business is too. No one's got to figure it out. It's pretty awesome like that. It's an ongoing, evolving challenge. and and Yeah, it's sort of like a morphing organism, really, and adapting quickly is important. Yeah, so flexibility is critical. Yes. Right? Because you never know. You you pick up, it's almost like you said earlier about uh, when you first got involved with Nike, you had a certain expectation. It was almost like there'll be a, a magic wand. Right. And right. It's like they'll they'll click the magic wand and here we go. And Hurley right. will become all of a sudden this uber super successful thing. Right. And it's like, no, now we're part of Nike and and now we have to still, you know, chop wood and carry water yeah. and you know, keep going. Yeah. So as it's evolved and as the brand has grown and you know, the sports market, I mean Nike invented sports marketing, right? right? And then Hurley comes along and starts uh, you know, having athletes, sponsoring athletes. Correct. And has had tremendous success with that. Yep. Right. So that's that takes a lot of courage to pay, you know, surfers, professional surfers, pay them to to represent the brand and have them out on the tour and support them and sponsor them on the tour and to elevate the brand, obviously to sell product. But behind the scenes, I remember those athletes, when they're not on the water, sitting together with the design, with the innovators, with the incubators mm-hmm. in the test kitchen, saying, How can we make this board short? better. Right. How do we make it so it's just the best possible board short? Yep. And that's a whole different level of, you know, use, sponsoring athletes both on and off the water right. to help elevate the brand. Right. So just curious if you could talk a little about that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, before I do, I just want to back up to one thing. Sure. The, the complexity of culture in the ever-changing world is also further complicated. There's not just one Hurley here, me. Right. So my brother was a founder of the company. My sons work here. My nephews work here. So all of us that work here know that we're mercenaries. We do business, man. We aren't attached to like the good old boy network. Not everyone at Nike knows that. Right. So when new people get into Nike, sometimes they step slowly. Sometimes they're not so forthcoming because they're scared that it's a family business that we're trying to control when we really just want the best end game of all. And not everybody knows that. Tom Clark knows that. Mark Parker, Roger knows that. But as the new people come in, it's it's good for us to explain that to them. But they don't. it doesn't always sink in. And it makes it more complicated, honestly, to work together because they might think we're trying to keep them at arm's distance when it's the opposite. We're trying to hug them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and as we both know, bureaucracy isn't always accepting of those kind of hooks. No, no, it doesn't like it. It makes them very uncomfortable. It's awkward for them. But uh, so the board shorts, I mean, Rob Machado goes to Bali with my son, Ryan, who's in charge of design, Bruce Moore, who's in charge of innovation, whole bunch of other servers, Brett Simpson, Yaden were there. And they're like, hey man, do board shorts really have to be super heavy with cargo pockets on the side? It doesn't help with surfing and these big embroideries that you guys are making. Well, that's what our big customers wanted. Surfers didn't want it, right? So they come up with this plan to make the Phantom board short. It was actually called Advantage at first. It stretched 120%. The only other thing on the market that stretched was 8%. We got a patent on 120% stretch, water repellent, woven board short that revolutionized the market. We did also find out something about patents. 
Nobody pays attention. You can sue everybody all you want. What's the point? No one pays attention. So we just keep trying to innovate and go faster. But that was an athlete-driven, and I'll say Rob Machado, in conjunction with our design and innovation teams, in conjunction with Nike fabric that existed that was designed for the Olympics, getting a patent on anything over 30% stretch. We were trying to be nice. We we're like, you guys can keep your 8%. You can go up to 20. Just don't go over 30, and we're cool. And everybody just gave us the proverbial... Stiff arm. It was kind of weird, yeah. but it was also good for me. You know yeah. what I mean? It, it's whatever. Right. We'll just you, keep going faster. We'll keep thinking of more things. Right. You have a vision. You try to implement that vision, and it's almost like. Uh, and you know I'm a baseball guy, but this is a more of a football analogy where you're running downfield, and there's always blockers, and you got to be able to get them out of the way. You have your blockers in front of you, trying to trying to move the tacklers out of the way, and that's what it's like sometimes. You go, I know, I'm trying to get to that goal line. Right. I'm trying to get there, and there's all these obstacles. In my way. All these Wait, distractions, right. right? Distractions, obstacles, challenges. You know, and you got to say, how do I pivot? Right. Always be willing to pivot, to yeah. change, to be, as long as you keep your eye on the ball, keep yeah. you know, keep keep that goal line in mind. You get there. It's right? pretty exciting to figure out. Yeah. I love it. I, I relish it. I that, totally welcome all those hard times and everything. It's so fun. I, I remember some of our conversations uh, where you say, you know, I'm excited to come into work today because I got this really big challenge in front of me yeah. and I'm, I'm going to take it on. I'm going to tackle it. I'm going to try and figure this thing out. Yeah. That's the nature of the entrepreneur. Yeah. Right? Super high optimism. Yeah. Super high courage. And doesn't really care much for what the obstacles are going to be because I'm going to get past it one well, way or the other. I'm the, going to get past it. The worst it. thing that's going to happen is you're going to die. And if uh, if that happens and you believe in an afterlife, who cares? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter what we believe. It is what it is. Exactly. Right. There you go. So tell us what Bob Hurley's doing these days. Well, I haven't been working full time for the last two years, which is pretty awesome. I'm just getting used to that. Um, uh the sons that work here are doing a pretty good job with the company and the team that's here with them is doing a great job. The brand is stronger than it was when I was working full time. We're more profitable than when I was working full time. And I work on now connecting people with our brand that I think are amazing humans. Uh, I'll meet a guy in Hawaii. I'll meet a person in Australia. I'll see this board builder here. I'll connect them with a pro surfer. I try to be a facilitator and a connector because mm -hmm. I really get my jollies like right. that. I like to find people that are so much more amazing than me and just go, oh, I met this guy named Ari. I bet he knows this other guy and I'm going to introduce them to YB. And they're going to do something crazy. And then I check out. Right. It's so fun. Yeah. I love so, that. Yeah, it's, it's like on a, on a checkerboard or chessboard. You say, oh, I got this piece here. I'm going to make this piece yeah. and this piece and that piece there. Beautiful. And uh, what's, what's it look like down the road for you? Well, I have a whole bunch of wonderful grandkids That's and wife that I've been blessed with. And uh, I got my brother and my sons and daughter and spending more Family. time with them and more time pursuing and exploring surfing and innovation and wondering if there's better kinds of trunks to wear or surfboards mm -hmm. to ride or maneuvers to perform. Not that I'm physically capable, <laughs> but I'm intrigued and I'm interested and I just love it. Yeah. If you're curious, there's no, no limit to what you can learn. Yeah. I mean, Mark Parker's big thing is curiosity, you know, and God bless the CEO of a Fortune 500 company that consistently talks about curiosity you know you can learn so much when we first started hurley there was no focus groups or anything it was just our friends and hey if you're under 20 and you got an opinion even if you're over 20 we'll listen to you but if you're under 20 we're probably we're gonna really listen it. to you <laughs> wonderful bob can't thank you enough for taking the time to spend uh chatting about your life and times 
Well, Grandmaster T, Teddy T. Tannenbaum, <laughs> Teddy T. Tannenbaum the third, the great Teddy, Teddy the coach. It has been my great delight and pleasure to learn about baseball from you and learn about life and ha- and watch you actually transform our business. It's been super cool, man. Beautiful. Really good for Thanks, me. Thanks, Bob. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Mm-hmm.